downtown crime hits home. The mail slot is large enough to actually fit a hand in. The terrifying break-in that has residents fearing for their safety. The Broadway subway right on track. Beginning this fall and completing the project in 2025. The company just awarded the mega contract and how soon they'll start digging. And snowbirds flocking to BC campgrounds. Most of them are reporting they're already booked. RV owners find waiting lists for winter accommodation. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Concerns tonight about the safety in and around the downtown core after another frightening situation in Vancouver. A woman who woke up to confront a knife-wielding man in her Yale town condo. Jordan Armstrong has more on why critics say it's another example of the growing crime and decay in the region. We're on Richard Street in Yaletown, not far from where it happened. The victim's dog woke her up just after 3 o'clock this morning. She looked outside and saw a guy holding a food delivery bag. It turns out he was the accomplice. She went back to bed and realized moments later there was actually a second man inside her home. He was downstairs. She kept her distance, but she says he threatened her twice with a knife. She screamed, and the bandit took off with electronics, her wallet, and several purses. 25 years living in Vancouver, she says the city has declined rapidly during the pandemic, and now she wants out. We're not revealing her identity nor exactly where she lives, but she wanted to speak out to warn others about a design flaw which allowed the thief to unlock her front door by reaching through the mail slot. She lives in a ground-level suite with its own door accessing the sidewalk. She says get a deadbolt or seal off the mail slot. Building kind of um, flaw that um, wouldn't seem obvious to anybody, but the mail slot is large enough to actually fit a hand in, and then if um, basically if uh, they have an, a tool that then just opens the door um, and they're able to come in. You replay these things, a stranger in your house in the middle of the night with a knife that lunges at you is not something you want to experience uh, on a Wednesday night at 3 a.m. Our officers did attend and we did what we can to locate these two individuals. We did also have a canine unit who did attempt to track, but unfortunately we're unable to locate them. Vancouver police spent the day canvassing the area for surveillance footage. Both suspects appear to be in their 20s. One is white, the other possibly South Asian. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. A Richmond teacher who was involved in a nasty altercation with the wife of the Delta police chief is disappointed with the latest decision about the dispute. Kieran Sidhu says after being verbally abused and sprayed with a hose, she's been told no charges will be laid. Catherine Urquhart reports. For several months, the wife of Delta's police chief has been under investigation. Now, the alleged victim says she has been told Lorraine Dubord will not be charged. Two charges were recommended. One was for uttering threats, and I'm assuming that's from when she um, threatened to push me off the rocks, and also for assault, and that would be the hosing incident. The investigation followed an incident outside Dubord's home at Centennial Beach in June. Sidhu says the high tide forced her to climb the rocks and touch the fence in front of the house, prompting Dubord to confront her, then spray her with water. After, Sidhu's friends challenged Dubord. 
She's literally in the middle of crossing and the waters no, come up and... at the one end when okay. I asked her okay. to get down. But but she did not... Delta police initially investigated their own chief's wife. Then, following public criticism, Surrey RCMP investigated. They informed me that they are not going to pursue charges against Lorraine. However, they have recommended alternative measures. Alternative measures usually involve offenders with no criminal history. The accused, given the opportunity to accept responsibility for the crime and make amends. Generally meet with a probation officer and um, there's some sort of restitution that's developed. And it's really everything is handled outside of the court setting. The OPCC is still investigating misconduct allegations related to how the case was handled by the Delta Police Department. Also outstanding, a service and policy complaint sent to the Delta Police Board. It concerns the department's policies and procedures related to real or perceived conflicts of interest. Her position and her husband's role in the community um, are important in terms of how she conducts herself. The BC Prosecution Service has confirmed Dubord faces alternative measures, saying it was guided by the criminal code. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. And now the news tens of thousands of lower mainland commuters have been waiting for. Work is finally set to begin to extend the Broadway subway line one of the busiest traffic and transit arteries in the country. Sonia Deol joins us now with more on what will soon be a major transit hub at Broadway and Arbuta. Sonia, this is going to be a transformative project, no doubt, for transit users Absolutely. and local businesses. Absolutely, Chris. This is going to be one of the biggest transit projects we've ever seen since the Canada Line. And some people may remember how disruptive that was. Uh, today, all levels of government showing up for the big announcement from federal to provincial to municipal. Another huge step for the Broadway subway extension with Mayor Kennedy Stewart calling it a great day for Vancouver. Can you believe what's happening here today? We are starting on the Broadway subway. The contract to design and build six new underground stations stretching the Millennium Line from VCC Clark to Arbutus awarded to the Broadway Subway Corporation, a joint venture between Axiona Geller. Each hour the extension will be able to move more than 7,000 people in each direction and that's three and a half times more than we can do today. Construction on the $2.83 billion project set to start in the fall and in service by 2025, bringing new jobs to a province trying to recover from the economic effects of COVID-19. This project will also be under a community benefits agreement, ensuring that local hire is a first priority, that training the next generation of skilled workers, women, indigenous peoples, and others who have oftentimes been taken out of the equation when it comes to apprenticeships, will be at the front of the line. The extension seen as welcome news for transit users. Oh, I love the project. That'd be awesome. Oh, I think it's great. Um, I'll be using it. I, I work at the hospital. But not so good for businesses set to be disrupted by construction. A lot of this is going to be whether it's going to be a something, a cut cover or a tunnel. It's going to frame the challenges that uh, the businesses and those and the communities surrounding the new subway will be facing. The mayor also promising to build rental housing along the new extension. The Broadway line will allow us to preserve and build homes that are steps away from high quality, rapid transit 
helping create walkable, transit-oriented communities. Kennedy Stewart's desire for SkyTrain to expand further, given a major boost from the Premier. Well, I'm confident that once we get the, this underway, we'll be starting immediately with the planning for the extension beyond there to uh, UBC. All right, Sonia, that extension is not a done deal yet. Could it turn into a federal election issue, maybe? Absolutely could, Chris. Uh, given that uh, Justin Trudeau and the federal government gave $900 million uh, to this project for this extension uh, to make that possible, if Justin Trudeau calls an election, it all depends on who's in charge and how much more money they're willing to give the province and to Kennedy Stewart for that further extension out to UBC. That is still anyone's guess. Chris? All right. Thanks very much, Sonia. Now a look at today's COVID-19 numbers for BC. We have 89 new cases. That brings our total to 6,041. Sadly, one more person has died from complications from the virus, which means we've now lost 210 people to COVID-19. 34 people are in hospital, 11 of them in the ICU. 4,644 people are considered fully recovered, leaving us with 1,175 active cases and 2,800 one people in isolation. It's a dire warning from the province's top doctor. BC remains at a tipping point when it comes to the spread of COVID-19. But as the province shifts towards a return to school and more people heading back to work, the guidance is changing slightly on one of the most familiar COVID-19 rules. Richard Zussman has more. It's been a pandemic response staple. When you're with people not in your bubble, stay two meters away. But in some very specific areas, that's now changing. But one meter is also good if you're with the same group of people you know and see regularly, such as work colleagues, classmates, for example. A surprise shift from the province as British Columbia gears up for the next phase of COVID-19, one including more people back to work and back to school. If you're going to be face-to-face, then absolutely we need that, that two metres. But if we're going to be in rows next to each other, then it's somewhere in between there is, is perfectly safe. The messaging part of the province's new round of data modelling. Cases of COVID-19 are growing among young people. Light green showing those 20 to 29, dark green those 30 to 39, and continuing to slowly rise, shown in dark blue, those aged 10 to 19. Right now, British Columbians continue to operate at about 65% of normal. But Dr. Henry's now familiar warning continues. COVID cases will soar if this number goes up to 70% or higher. We're at that precipice, if you will, where we need to take the actions to ensure that we can move forward into the fall and keep our curve low. The cases continue to be focused in Metro Vancouver. Vancouver Coastal Health seeing an infection rate of 18.6 people out of 100,000. Fraser Health at 15.7 out of 100,000. And if we put that into the context of some of the uh, guidance that we've seen come out of Europe and the U.S., where the, the, the cutoff for being safe for things like uh, full opening of schools and businesses, they use a measure of 25 per 100,000. Premier John Horgan says the province has no intention of changing the approach when it comes to cracking down on those breaking COVID rules.
Minister Farnworth has announced and has in fact issued significant fines for people who will disregard these basic public health orders. And we'll continue with that method of uh, carrot and stick until we get the, the types of outcomes that all British Columbians want to see. Many wondering if there are more presentations like this one with cases rising, the stick may need to take a bigger role. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. And new details today from the province on how it will distribute $242 million in federal funding to reopen schools safely next week. Keith Baldry has more on who will decide how that money will be spent and when it will be doled out. We are initially allocating $101.1 million to public school districts, $7.96 million to independent schools, and reserving $12.1 million for emerging COVID-related issues between September uh, and December 2020. It's no doubt a big boost to efforts to make schools as safe as possible when they reopen next week. The money Education Minister Rob Fleming is referring to may be coming from Ottawa, but how it will be spent will be up to each school district. Some money will be spent on physical improvements, some on hiring more employees, and some in other areas. So this funding will be used in different ways by different school districts based on what their uh, priorities are for additional resources for COVID safety. It may be hiring additional teachers and supporting remote learning options where the need for that is great. It may be uh, a different in a, a rural or remote community where uh, the emphasis might be on transportation or uh, investments in a school around safety. This funding injection and local control over how it will be spent was welcomed warmly by those who work in the system. We're getting closer to where we need to be. Uh, obviously, we would have preferred stricter guidelines about that. Um, but what we expect is that every single school district across this entire province will do their best to ensure that teachers are hired, to reduce classroom density, and ensure there's a remote option offered. The way that the uh, Minister Fleming, uh, this announcement has come out, uh, we're very happy because it does exactly, it puts the, the decisions of where the money should be spent at the local level. The money coming from Ottawa will arrive in two installments, with a second $121 million scheduled to arrive in January. All right, Keith Baldry is here to talk more about the back-to-school plan. Keith, Dr. Henry was also asked today if individual schools could choose to make masks mandatory. Yes, the ever-sensitive issue of where you, whether you should have a mask mandatory in schools is an issue that's not going away. We do have at least one instance of a principal in the Tri-Cities area saying that he was invoking a mandatory 100% mask rule. He was overruled by public health, and he's had to revoke that in an email to parents saying it remains public health's view. It is voluntary except for high-traffic areas. That question was put to Dr. Bonnie Henry today about that. She just hasn't really heard a lot about that, but again, repeats her concerns about mandatory mask wearing. I'm not aware that any schools have the, uh, the need for um, that type of a measure. It is what we would be above and beyond what we feel is needed given the evidence. So I think they need to look at um, where masks are going to be of benefit and where they may be a hindrance because we know there's challenges particularly for younger children in terms of uh, being able to learn and, and uh, uh, it can impede for some children. So again, to repeat, no mandatory mask rule coming in BC schools, at least not right now. I predict, and talking to a lot of educators, that students being students and peer pressure being what it is, a lot of kids are going to be wearing masks more and more as the school year progresses. We'll know, we'll start beginning to realize whether that's true or not, starting next Thursday when kids come back to school. As long as they don't trade masks, or at least exactly. not dirty masks. Not, not like trading cards. Okay, thanks, Keith. 
Plans to go camping for their five-year-old's birthday spoiled by thieves. We'll show you the... Signs of life in Lebanon more than a month after a blast that destroyed the Beirut waterfront. That's coming up on the news hour. And can the Vancouver Canucks keep their Stanley Cup dream alive? Another must-win game coming up later in sports. Right now, though, a Langley family had brought their trailer out of storage, planning a camping trip for their five-year-old's birthday. But it was stolen right from their driveway. Fortunately, the theft was caught on camera, which helped investigators write a much happier ending to the story. Here's Aaron MacArthur. It looks like the most normal thing in the world. A truck backs up to a travel trailer, hooks up and drives off. But this is at three in the morning. The trailer still has its wheel chocks on, and it does not belong to the people in this truck. It was stolen out of the front driveway of this Langley home. How long did the whole thing take? Five minutes. Tops, like start to finish. The trailer is owned by Derek, who doesn't want us to use his last name. But the Langley resident only had the unit in his driveway for a couple of hours. He had brought it home from storage to pack up for a weekend camping trip. Five hours after he unhooked, it was stolen. The next morning, he couldn't quite believe it. It was like a waking up out of a dream. Like, I, I wasn't sure at first. Like, I kind of saw nothing and then couldn't remember, did I actually bring it home? The Langley RCMP didn't provide comment about the brazen theft. But late Thursday afternoon, Derek says the RV was found at a rural property in Agassiz. Mostly because of the security video that was recorded by his Tesla parked in the garage. It definitely helped right away because he, he had the video. He saw the, the truck. He knew what truck it was and um, right away knew that it was our, that's why we got called. The camping trip was supposed to be a celebration for his son's fifth birthday. He just wants to go dirt biking, so that's what our plan was, just to take it out dirt biking, and that's it. It's gone. So, you know, with everything else that goes with it. According to the owner, the trailer was driven down some back roads and was in the process of being stripped down. They'll still miss the camping trip, the RV now evidence, in a much larger investigation. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Surrey RCMP have made a significant seizure of illegal drugs. On August 20th, officers detained two individuals outside a residence in the 9400 block of 129th Street in Wally. They were found to be in possession of cash and street-level drugs. From this investigation, police were able to obtain a search warrant for the residence. Officers found and seized an enormous stash of illegal drugs, including 225 grams of cocaine and 3.1 kilograms of suspected fentanyl. They also found $100,000 in cash. One suspect was released at the scene. Another was arrested during the execution of the search warrant. No charges have been laid. Up ahead, a different kind of crop for some Kelowna growers. What harvest time is like at Canada's largest outdoor cannabis operation. And Joe Biden visits Kenosha, Wisconsin. What he did that Donald Trump did not. Clearing stages of a rollover crash here in West Vancouver, westbound on the upper levels highway near Cypress Bowl Road. Only the left lane continues to get by and traffic is backed up from about 15th Street on the approach. Time to renew your home insurance. Switch to BCAA for local knowledge, customized coverage and valuable ways to save. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in West Vancouver.
Animal rights activists protested in Abbotsford today as four of their members faced charges in court. Questions still linger about the explosive video that sparked the protest and the arrests. The activists faced charges of break and enter and mischief stemming from a protest in April of last year. Dozens of activists stormed and occupied the Excelsior hog farm, claiming video had shown animal abuse at the facility. The industry abuses animals with impunity. There is zero government oversight on farms. The industry regulates itself. And this should concern anyone who cares about transparency and accountability. However, as mentioned, there are serious questions about the authenticity of the video that sparked the protest. The farm's owner claims the video, which was released by PETA, is a fabrication and that PETA used only images from the part of the farm that cares for sick animals. He gave cameras and reporters a tour of the farm to prove the animals were treated humanely. The SPCA even says it investigated the farm within a few days of receiving the video and found no conditions that would have warranted the seizure of animals. The case of the four protesters was put over until next month. An orcharding family from Kelowna is branching out, acquiring hundreds of acres for the largest commercial outdoor cannabis crop in Canada. They are now the largest employer in the community, and as Global's Darian Matassa Fung reports, September is harvest time. A family-owned and run BC cannabis production company is nearing its first ever fall harvest, ready to bring in 60,000 plants. Latitude, we're very warm and we have a long, um, a long summer, so what happens if we get cool at night? We couldn't be more excited. I mean, everybody is just pumped around, uh, around the place. Speakeasy Cannabis is owned and run by Mark Gein. He's organizing the harvest this month, a crop that has been over six years in the making, the time it took to get the okay to do this from the Canadian government. It took six years, three months, and nine days to get. Um, it, was a, it was a grind. Speakeasy's outdoor grow up is one of the largest in Canada at around 60 acres in Rock Creek, a mere village near the U.S. border east of the Okanagan Valley. We're expecting about 150,000 pounds total, and that's uh, flour uh, as a finished product and biomass uh, as well, so um, we will have a pretty good supply. As one of the pioneers in Canada's budding cannabis market, Gein says security was up to them to design. The security system up there is very robust. We've got uh, four layers uh, of security, um, uh, not including the fence. Gein tells me his family has been farming here in the Okanagan since the early 1900s when his great-grandfather came here from England. Being in the area where it's so dry, uh, our relative humidity right now is probably 30-40%. Um, temperatures are still up in the 30s uh, during the day. Uh, it's just it's just absolutely perfect for um, you know making plants grow vigorously. The harvest will create 80 jobs, with more to come as they expand indoor operations in the near future. Darian Matassafung, Global News, Rock Creek. Still to come, unlocking some of COVID's dirty secrets. That is not the right video. Well, we'll tell you about Joe Biden's trip to Kenosha coming up. And hoping for a miracle in the rubble of a Beirut building one month after the blast that leveled it.
some extra volume still here on Highway 1 eastbound through the Burnaby Lake stretch after clearing earlier problems. Now there's a brand new one. Further east on Highway 1, watch out for a stall near North Road in the right lane. Time to renew your home insurance. Switch to BCAA for local knowledge, customized coverage, and valuable ways to save. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 1 in Burnaby Lake. If you get the unsolicited ballots, send it in and then go make sure it counted. And if it doesn't tabulate, you vote. Donald Trump continuing his campaign against mail-in voting in the upcoming election by suggesting people vote twice, once by mail and once in person, which, of course, is against the law. That forced the North Carolina State Board of Elections to remind people that attempting to vote twice in an election is a felony. Well, Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden traveled to Kenosha, Wisconsin today to do what the president didn't, visit the family of the man who was shot by police. The president, meantime, talking more about his plan to redirect federal funds away from some Democrat-led cities. Joe and Jill Biden arriving in Kenosha to do what they say President Trump could not do, help that scarred city heal. I think we've reached an inflection point in American history. People are beginning to figure out who we are as a country. This is not who we are. Making his first trip to the crucial swing state of Wisconsin in two years, just two days after President Trump, Biden met privately for an hour and a half with the family of Jacob Blake, the black man shot in the back seven times by police. Blake himself, now out of the ICU, joining by phone. He talked about how nothing was going to defeat him. How... Whether he walked again or not, he was not going to give up. Fear doesn't solve problems. Only hope does. Biden has said the officer who shot Blake should be charged, but Attorney General William Barr on Wednesday insisted Blake's conduct contributed to the situation. In the Jacob case, he was in the midst of committing a felony and he was armed. Those comments outraged the Blake family that says Blake posed no threat. Tonight, President Trump is campaigning in Pennsylvania after threatening to pull federal funding for what he calls anarchist jurisdictions, singling out Democratic-run cities like Portland, Seattle, and New York that he says allow themselves to deteriorate into lawless zones. We must strictly and fully enforce our law and have no tolerance for anarchy. The president, we noted, has made empty threats before. The president will follow through. His memo is exceedingly clear. But that memo that's likely to face legal challenges triggered this furious reaction from New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Forget bodyguards. He better have an army if he thinks he's going to walk down the street in New York. Joe Biden tonight promised if elected, he'll convene a national commission on policing, bringing together police chiefs and civil rights activists to address tensions within their communities. Search teams going through the rubble of an area devastated by the Beirut port explosion detected signs of life in the debris of a collapsed building today. A rescue dog first detected movement in an area that was one of the worst hit by the August 4th explosion. Maybe there are still miracles these days, and maybe one is happening tonight in Beirut. A Chilean and Lebanese rescue team detected what could be a heartbeat and a thermal image indicating life in a crumbling building. A detector even sensed breathing. It indicated there is a pulse, 18 beats a minute. There is a possibility of life, this rescue worker says. And that's simply astounding because the possible survivor, maybe more than one, would have first had to have lived through this. 
An explosion of nearly 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate left neglected at Beirut's central port. It smashed the city, made 300,000 homeless, injured 6,000, killed 191, but perhaps spared one. This dog, the first to notice, may have sniffed its way to a miracle. And now the teams often call for silence, so rescuers can listen for any signs of life. Hours in, the search continues. Rescue workers have also had to pause several times because the building is shifting. They say they will keep searching, even if there's only a 1% chance of finding a survivor. In Health Matters tonight, if you travel by air, it's almost impossible to be sure the person sitting near you is not carrying the coronavirus. But starting today, a new research project has started at Toronto's Pearson International Airport aimed at detecting who is coming into the country with COVID-19. Global's Sean O'Shea has the details. Traveling in a pandemic isn't for everyone. Flight traffic is down about 80% here at Canada's largest airport. But now a new COVID-19 passenger testing program may help boost flyer confidence, one that might support the end of a mandatory traveler quarantine. While it made sense uh, perhaps at the beginning, and certainly you know, I, I commend uh, public health at the beginning of the, uh, of the outbreak, certainly you know, we think now that uh, you know, now's the time to collect the data and provide that data to the government so that you know, they, they could look at the alternatives to the 14-day quarantine. Now for a month, incoming international travelers will be asked to participate in a voluntary study answering questions and agreeing to take three screening tests. The intention of the study, Sean, is to look at uh, how many people come into Canada with COVID-19, whether it's detectable at day one, detectable at day seven, or detectable at day 14. So we are exploring the science of when you actually find infection. The first test performed by a professional here at the airport, the others self-administered. But it's less invasive, so people are more likely to do it the three times. Researchers working on the project for Air Canada hope to collect samples from 15,000 travellers. No shortage of volunteers on the first day. Just peace of mind for myself. The subsequent tests will help determine whether travellers may be carrying the coronavirus, but could only be detected later. And see, for people coming from different countries that have different levels of risk of COVID, what the proportions that showed infection on arrival on day 7 and day 14 are. David Keegan, returning from Ireland, will have spent a month in quarantine. I was at home for two weeks and I had to quarantine for two weeks and I got another two weeks of quarantine. Um, but I do think that reducing the quarantine, at least for a shorter period, might help. I would hope that you know the, the data would support our, our, our thoughts that you know there is an alternative to the 14-day quarantine. And if so, drive more business for airlines. Sean O'Shea, Global News, Toronto. Later on the news hour, Harry and Meghan sign a mega deal. Their partnership with Netflix and the pet projects they'll create. And with the border closed, how RV owners are trading the Sunbelt for BC.
Looks like BC's staycation travel boom isn't going to end when summer is over. Linda Aylesworth explains why the phones are still ringing off the hook at some of the province's RV dealers and campgrounds. It's been a busy RV summer season in BC in spite of COVID-19. The Europeans cancelled, the Americans cancelled, but it was more than made up for by the staycations from British Columbians. But there's busy, and then there's too busy, which is what seems to be on the horizon as the season changes to winter. We have seen demand increase over over the last few years, but this year demand has skyrocketed. For the colder months, we've got a, actually quite a big wait list now. I've had so many people call, at least 8, 10, maybe 12 people a day calling me to find out if we have any vacancies. And the answer is always, no, I'm sorry, try another park. The reason? closed borders, preventing them from migrating south to warmer climes. For many, staying on the east coast or in the prairies is not an option. I mean, minus 20, minus 30, wind chills going down to minus 50. You just can't operate an RV park uh, with that. You need to be in insulated housing to be able to cope with those temperatures. Or you drive to B.C., which as many as 15,000 Canadians who live in their RVs are considering. Problem is, we only have 3,000 winter sites here. What we're doing to try and address that is work with our partners in the BC hotel industry to see whether they can actually house some of these people in housekeeping units. As many as 200,000 Canadians live year-round in their RVs, some will find sites with electricity, propane and sewage. Others might find refuge with family and friends. And if they can't find it in regular uh, parks, they may decide to, to camp in streets or, or parking lots or other places. Of course, the borders might open by then, but given what's going on in the U.S., some snowbirds might decide to tough it out here anyway. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Well, looks like a nice vacation. Sure, it's going to be for a lot of people. Let's hope the... Let's hope the winter is as nice and mild as the summer has been so far for them. Christy's here with more on the forecast. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, not looking into our winter forecast just yet, that's for sure. We'll likely have winter weather here, but uh, for the next several days, it's all summer, that's for sure. I want to show you, before I talk a little bit about the forecast, look at these photos that just came into our newsroom today. Uh, funnel cloud or tornado spotted over the Adams Lake area. Dale Anderson sending us this. Really quite a stunning shot of either a tornado or a funnel cloud. Now, I want you to note, though, this occurred on August 3rd. 31st early in the morning, but we just got these photos today. We've got a call in to Environment Canada to see if they can confirm this, but quite a stunning shot. Thank you to Dale for sending that to us. Uh, but yes, nothing of concern today, everyone. All heat, all sunshine. Now, over the weekend, though, Saturday and Sunday, expect cloud cover in the morning. That's going to keep our conditions a little bit cooler, but we'll come out of it Monday and Tuesday. If you like the heat, there's lots on the way tomorrow, especially being a hot one, not only here, but in Kelowna. And you'll see two days of heat before that little dip occurs for your region also. Now, the North Coast not enjoying all the sunshine that the rest of us will. Tomorrow, cloud cover for you. And as you head into your Saturday morning, 
morning, more rain, and that shifts into the BC Peace River South region. Now, you'll note, though, the Saturday morning across the south coast, quite a bit of low-level cloud uh, right around Victoria, Metro Vancouver as well. So, as I mentioned, that morning cloud cover, afternoon sun pattern expected through the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. So, there's a cloud cover for the north coast regions, but sunshine and heat all across southern BC and for the south coast as well. So, a really hot Friday afternoon expected, but when then we drop off Saturday and Sunday with those cooler conditions and morning cloud cover. And then we ramp up back once again as we approach the first uh, as we approach that first day of um, of school. So lots of heat when the kids head back to school. Here's your central windows weather window, which is a great shot looking out over uh, the Okanagan Lake, uh, Kelowna area. That's a day or a, an evening to be sitting in one of those. It looks like the deck is wet, but even with a bit of a shower, I would still take it to have that view. No doubt. Well, you need a little rain for a rainbow like that, right? It's beautiful. Thanks, Christy. That's right. All right, so much going on in uh, sports. Very BC-focused today, Squire. Yes, well, we oh, have hi. the Canucks, of course, and um, Steve Nash has a job. It's good that he has a job. <laughs> and uh, just like the Canucks did in Game 5, yes, uh, BC's Vashik Pospisil pulled an upset to stay alive. He beat his old... And Netflix royalties, the new deal Harry and Meghan just signed, and the content they'll be creating. Well, big surprises and hopefully lots of celebrating is ahead for Canuck fans tonight. We'll see. They surprise everybody in Game 5. And because they are in a bubble and because they're highly secretive because it's the playoffs, we really don't know officially what is wrong with Jacob Markstrom. But with Game 7 tomorrow, if needed, it looks like Thatcher Demko is Vancouver's goalie for the rest of this series against Vegas. And maybe he would start Round 3 as well if the Canucks should get there. That game's just about to start. Meanwhile, Philadelphia trying to keep its season alive and force a game seven. Oscar Lindblom diagnosed with bone cancer. First game in nine months. Lindblom coming back from that, that's incredible. James Van Riemsdyk and the Flyers get off to a quick start. Two nothing in the first period. Islanders come back. Tied 2-2. And Anders Lee on the rebound after the Barzell shot doesn't go in. Makes it 3-2. It's 3-3 late in the second period. And Matt Barzell, just like he used to do for the Burnaby Winter Club. Scoring there, 4-3. But Scott Lawton, breakaway, makes the move, scores the goal. They're going to OT. Philadelphia needs one more goal to force a game seven. Steve Nash surprised a lot of people when he went from Victoria through Santa Clara to the NBA. Then he continued to surprise in the NBA by winning two MVPs. But nothing he has done in basketball was quite as surprising as what happened this morning when he was named the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. Nobody saw this coming. There were no rumors and he's never coached before. But the NBA has a history of players becoming coaches without ever being assistant coaches first. And Brooklyn superstar Kevin Durant is very good friends with Nash, so he signed off on this. Second round, U.S. Open, all-Canadian matchup. It's Milos Ronic against B.C.'s Vasek Pospisil. Ronic won the first set, but Pospisil would win the second set. Little drop there. Milos isn't getting that. He won the second set, Vasek did, 6-3. Third set, 
at the net. Pospisil, Ronich, Pospisil, Ronich, oh, OB. Third set went to tie break. Voshek would win it 7 6. Nice. And Pospisil gets it done. Now, these two have played each other since they were kids. Four set, Voshek. Oh, that's cheeky. Oh, come on. That's just a beautiful pickup. Won 27 of 30 points Spot at the net. This is match point. Game set. And Pospisil, for the first time in his career, is going to the third round at the U.S. Open. Uh, Montreal's Leila Annie Fernandez was taking on Sophia Cannon. The second seed in this tournament. First set. Fernandez lost at 6-4, to four, but this is a nice drop shot. Yep. Shows some skill. Cannon, uh, though, started chasing down those drop shots and won this 6-4, 6-3. Fernandez was the only Canadian on the women's side of the draw. All right. They'll be talking about this for a while in Toronto. I know they won the title last year, but they needed to save their series right here against Boston. Down 2-0. First quarter, Kyle Lowry. One hand. Count it. And a foul. That was in the first quarter. But Boston had the lead at halftime by 10. Kemba Walker for three. Man, they've made a few of those. Let's fast forward to the fourth quarter. Norm Powell now gives the Raptors the lead by two. Raptors are now down by two. We're in the final minute. Fred Van Vliet scores. But look at this play in the dying seconds. Daniel Tice is wide open. Walker to Tice. There's only a half second left in the game. And they're up by two, Boston is. So Toronto needs this. Lowry has to throw it over Taco Fall. That's like throwing it over the Statue of Liberty. Finds OG Ananobi for the catch and release three-pointer. That's a win. And Toronto is now down only 2-1 in the series. It's not quite like the ball bouncing around for Kawhi Leonard against Philadelphia, but it's Four bounces. Close. The uh, Caps will play their first game at BC Place in six months this Saturday night against Toronto FC. Vancouver's trying to snap a three-game losing streak. They've been outscored 6-0 in that losing streak. Maybe playing at home, even without fans, will change things. Here's Ty Darren, a little bit of space. Can he get a good cross into the middle? Wonderful ball in! Header from Kyoto! The mood is not a mood of giving up. It's a mood of we want to win, we want to do well. I felt in training everybody was, was good, was competitive, working hard. This year, there's just too many things happening that it's been hard on everybody, but never this has created separation in the locker room, guys lacking respect with each. No, it, that part has been good. Now it's a group that deserves to, to start making points again. Am I doing this? Oh, I see. My head disappears. Okay. You got taller. I know. 
How That's long it for me. It up, though? All right, thanks, Squire. Let's check in with Andrewa for a look ahead to Global News at 11. And thanks, Sophie. Just days after homeless campers were moved out of a square in front of Victoria City Hall, Council has voted to allow overnight camping again. The tent city was cleared out on Tuesday because of growing crime in the area. But councillors today voted to remove Centennial Square from the list of parks where overnight camping is prohibited. However, campers won't be allowed back right away. We'll hear from Victoria's mayor who voted against reopening the square. That story when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Sophie, Chris. Sounds good. Thank you, Ann. Harry and Meghan make a deal with Netflix. What kind of content can we expect from the Duke and Duchess? That's next. The highly anticipated Mulan remake is set to be released tomorrow, but not everyone is going to be able to view it. The live-action film will be streamed on Disney Plus for an additional 30 U.S. dollars on top of whatever you're paying for the monthly subscription service. But if you're willing to wait until December 4th, all subscribers will be able to watch the film at no additional cost. The movie was shifted from theaters to Disney Plus due to, of course, the pandemic. Well, six months after their own real-life drama detangling their lives from the royal family, Britain's Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have signed a multi-year production deal with Netflix. The couple is starting their own production company and will be creating content exclusively for the streaming service that they hope will inform but also give hope. Harry and Meghan's announcement making headlines around the world. Not a surprise that they have done a deal like this. We knew that they were talking to media companies, but the fact that it is with Netflix is really uh, raising eyebrows and the kind of money that people are talking about, not confirmed, that they might earn somewhere between $75 million and hundreds of millions of dollars from this deal, which appears to involve quite a number of different kinds of content. They'll be producing all sorts of projects from... TV series to documentaries to feature films. And one of the things they mentioned in particular was children's programming as, as relatively new parents. That's something that they have, a, I guess, a pretty great deal of interest in. It's clear from the statements that Harry and Meghan are making that they are hoping to provide positive content, stuff that, if you like, does good around the world. I think the real issue for them will be the attention that will be on them are they able to make content that is good enough even with all their influential and experienced friends uh, helping them uh, can they really make this work Keir Simmons NBC News London I think they'll probably figure it out I think they will if uh, <laughs> they're going to bring in some good talent too I think hopefully some of it's Canadian too considering the time they've spent here Connects yeah. looking good early Squire yes mm -hmm. shotgun Jake Excellent. Wonderful. Cool already. All right. More coming up later. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a good night. Good night, all.